You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 31. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of the CSP Podcast. So glad to have you back. You know, when I originally conceived of an opening for this episode, I thought of perhaps doing a little accent. You know, maybe a little Russian thing or Scottish, Irish, something along those lines. But I'm an introvert at heart, and I'm just not there yet. Maybe in another 20 episodes, I'll start to feel a little more comfortable doing that sort of thing but not yet. So what am I talking about accents for anyway? Well, you should know because you downloaded this episode and I hope you just didn't look and download this for nothing. I hope you're interested in today's topic. It's about accent modification. And I'm welcoming back Tom Scholl. You might remember this guy. He was uh, on the show about a year and a half ago to talk about Donors Choose. Today, Tom's going to talk about his part-time private practice as a professional working on accent modification. So clients, adult clients, coming to him looking to improve their presentation skills so that others understand, understand them more. Maybe they want to uh, improve on their English dialect. And there's a lot that goes into this. There's a lot that goes into accent modification. And when I first heard about accent modification back in 2000-ish, 2001, I didn't think speech pathologists were really the professional to do this. I felt it was outside of our scope of practice. It took me some years to kind of come around to accepting and at this point embracing that speech pathologists are uniquely qualified to work with this population. I suppose I shouldn't use the word population. It sounds a little too clinical. Anyway, um, Tom talks about all things accent modification. Everything from the business side, how he finds his clients. We get very deep into phonetic transcription, why it's so important. We talk about allophones and just the different variations, the multitude of ways to make the same sound and how listening to our clients, how having clients listen to their own productions, all the tools, tricks that Tom uses, he talks about today. And uh, it was a great discussion. It really was. It made me want to go and pursue this. Not that I have any time to do this, but who knows? Maybe in a year or two, I might try my hand at this. Um, we'll see. So let's get into this conversation with Tom. Thanks for listening. Here it is. Very cool. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. So you just let out for the summer. It's already, it's close to July. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, Boston really likes to make sure that we, they get their money's worth. So uh, we, we went till Friday was our last day of school. And you start when? Is it like after Labor Day or? Uh, Yeah, we go back. uh, We, we have retreats and, um, you know, we meet with our um, departments uh, a little bit before school starts just to get ready. Um, That happens in late August. So last time you were on the show, we talked about donors choose. Right. Um, today, I want to talk to you about accent modification. 
Great. And Two of my um, favorite topics. Yeah. Did I <laughs> did I tell you my story about um, that seminar I went to like way back when I was a younger SLP? No. Uh, okay. So I I think this would be kind of interesting for the audience to hear. So let me tell you. Um, so when I decided to go into peds, you know, I started out my career as in a, working with adults, and then when I transferred over. And uh, I started a private practice early in my career, and I did a lot of early intervention. And in 2001, I was considering also doing accent modification. And at the time, I think it was fairly, I mean, people were doing it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal yet. And I think even in the field, um, at least here in the States, uh, I don't know if ASHA had even developed a position statement on it yet. They okay. might have. I know they, I can't remember when that point came. I know they did, but I think they sort of just, they were okay with it, I think, for the longest time, even though it wasn't sort of like a formally, you know, there was no special interest group. There was, there were no papers on it, anything like that. But um, I went to this presentation uh, in 2001 here in the Chicago area. And I remember um, it was like two or three days. I can't remember what it was. But I remember going out to lunch after, I think, the first day with a group of um, women who were, attending and we also and there were like kind of like a couple of different camps there are different people or different reactions to the seminar the first reaction was um yeah this is really cool i really want to jump into this and then there's like this other reaction and i think i was sort of this camp like we went into it not really sure like if this is this something that i should be doing is this in my <laughs> scope of practice like there was a kind of this right. idea like you know what are we doing and i remember the woman i won't i won't say her name but she I, I'm sure she still presents on the topic, but she was saying, you know, you are the communication experts. This fits in naturally with what we already do. And I, you know, I think there was just this group of us who were like, I don't know, we're just not there yet. And uh, it took me some years before I really started to think about the fact that it really did make sense. And I think maybe part of the reason why um, her seminar didn't make as much sense to me is because she went beyond. If I remember correctly, she went kind of beyond just sort of like normal accent reduction to talk about global business presentation skills. And okay. yeah, and so I was like, you know, you're kind of getting really outside of this bubble of you know, where my comfort zone. So right. that, I mean, you can really just, you know, it's like kind of like slippery slope, you know, how far away from core, you know, accent reduction, really working in articulation to this idea of like, okay, I want you to, you know, it's, okay, diaphragmatic breathing, slow pace, you know present <laughs> body and then you that. get into body language and it's like okay where does it end but we sort of do some of that with you know our our students who have disorders right i mean you know it, we talk about pacing and slowing pace to so they can self-monitor and um a lot of the strategies we work with disordered individuals work when we're talking about typical individuals who just are trying to change their communication um, yes and I, you know, I, I do think that we are in a unique position because even if we haven't had formal training in certain areas, like, you know, when we talk about certain kinds of presentation skills, that wasn't really a big part of our education in terms of what we were taught to teach. Of course, we had to do this. I mean, we were, we were presenting all the time. Um, and we were graded and gave, given feedback on this. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we are unique in that we are, not only are we observant of communication and communication styles, but 
in a way that we really look at what's observable and measurable. And we look at things and say, you know, what do I see and what are people's perceptions? And is there a relationship there? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that's why we're unique. As yeah. No, I, and I, I really come full circle. I, I think uh, not only do I accept it, I see it. I really do see SLPs or SLTs, depending where you are, as being, you know, uniquely qualified uh, for yeah. this type of work. So, no, I, I really... You know, I, I've really kind of, I think, come to embrace what this whole idea. But, you know, one of the questions, you know, we were talking about what we wanted to talk about for this podcast. And I, I think I, I actually printed it out right before I called you. So I, okay. had, so I had, you know, question number eight is, do you ever feel clients are asking you for services that go a bit further than you feel comfortable providing? So, you know, do you ever, do they ever get to this point where they're, you, you almost feel like I'm a life coach now? No, <laughs> I know exactly. I, I am really good about having clear boundaries on that, though. So I, I'm really clear up front that, that the service is, is accent modification, and we're going to talk about pronunciation. Right. So I generally don't get into grammar, and I don't get into vocabulary. If I see a big, consistent error, I point it out. I'm not going to let it go. I, don't want, I want people to get the most that they can out of it. Yeah. Um, so I'll point things out. And I have had people, you know, we, we do, I, st- I start sessions with sort of a what's new, what's going on, and we do sort of open, sort of open just conversation. Um, and I'm really using it to hear how their accent is changing over time. Mm. And sometimes I've had people, you know, in their, in their diagnostic and in their open conversation start telling me extremely personal <laughs> um, aspects of their life and and almost asking for advice, like life coaching. Uh, and then yeah, yeah. I have to just fight that. And I say, so here's what I notice about reduced vowels. <laughs> and I, yeah, just, yeah. I go right back into consonants and vowels. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I, I can totally see that. You know, we all have a, this therapeutic relationship. So I'm sure it can, it can um, you know, even in my own, you know, practices, SLPs, you know, this is, I'm sure it happened to you, where families start talking about things that are tangential and you, that that boundary be t- between just speech language pathologist and therapist sometimes gets a little blurred. So it, it happens in all areas of practice. Right. I think professional boundaries are key so that you're not saying, I really like to reduce vowel and yes, you should leave your husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it's you gotta you gotta know where <laughs> where to put your attention and and where the scope of practice is. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit. How did you become interested in accent modification? Where did that start for you? So uh, the last time we talked, um, we talked a little bit about my history in um, cute speech. Yes. And so because of the nature of cute speech as a manual system um, used with deaf and hard of hearing people, um, because you manually uh, encode the phonemes of English, as a transliterator, I was constantly, it was almost like I was constantly performing broad transcription with my hand. Mm-hmm. Every time I facilitated communication between people using um, cute speech as a transliterator. So when you do that as a transliterator, if someone has an accent, you encode the accent as well for the deaf person. So if someone says, we were wondering if you're working hard, are you working hard? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you would cue that um, and you would uh, omit the, the consonant r. Yeah, uh, from hard, and so I was doing all this really minute 
sort of accent work for years and just, I just loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then I started teaching transliterators how to do that. How do you listen to accents and perceive what people are saying? And I have a really deep love of accents. And which is funny because you think that I'm trying to get rid of them <laughs> in, yeah, yeah. This, in this practice, but I'm really not. Um, it's more about just helping people get control of them. Right. right. And so do you think, um, jumping ahead here, so do you find that with your clients who maybe want to reduce their accents so they can become more intelligible to you know, their business peers or whatever, are, do you find that uh, your clients, after they're done with their, uh, their treatment, that they do some type of code switching or do they, do you think they have this carte blanche just change in their speech regardless of who they're talking to? Uh, you know, I, I do hear an ability to code switch uh, with my clients and I worked with a guy who had a pretty strong Boston accent and he wanted to change it. He wanted to be able to, in professional settings, to have a different accent. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of identified what kind of accent he wanted and I had him do an exercise towards the end of his course with me. I had I created a, a text about a guy reading a story to his child. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it was, um, it was about this, this book called Dot Gets a Job or something. And um, so he's reading it and he says, I read a book to my daughter. It was about Dot. Dot had a job. And she did not like her job because it was a mopping job. And Dot did not like to mop, so she did not like her mopping job. And then he paused and said, oh, my God, Tom, that was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I good. just died laughing. It was perfect. I mean, it was just he did one accent perfectly, went back to his other accent perfectly. I mean, he could just yeah. go back and forth. And it was his choice. So long term, so do you think that the long term implication is that he will continue to code switch? I I suppose. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, imagine you go home to your family and you have this other accent all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not going to go over with your siblings, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, they're not going to let you get away with that um, because we have all these social attitudes towards accents, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. It's an interesting idea, just the fact that you could change the vowels you use and people think you're putting on airs. True. You know, and and I was thinking that I do this thing all the time where if I'm in a different uh, environment, if I'm traveling or whatever, and I'm in a different geographic area of the U.S. or even overseas, I've done this before, you quickly, at least for me, I sort of quickly adopt the dialect of uh, where I am. Not, Not in a very overt way, but very subtle. Yeah, and, and, and it's it's normal, yeah. and and also you you're trained in this, yeah. so you're you're more keenly aware than most people to do that. I think it shows some empathy, and um, and it's just it's pretty typical. It, you know, you have to be careful that you don't it doesn't become um, mocking and um, sure. you know those sorts of things. But I think people tend to do that very naturally. Yeah, and I also have to just total a. Uh, random story but i remember hearing i think it was a oh, this american life podcast about it was a story about this guy i think he was in northern california he wasn't i can't remember where he was from originally but he was in this business of cleaning up uh crime scenes okay <laughs> and um in order he and I mean, he was saying that in order to get business what he would do is he would sort of like feign 
a uh, southern, um, just a, a mild southern accent uh, to get this familiarity. He said he felt that it got him more business. That it's like, how y'all doing? You know, he just <laughs> he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't, you know, he wasn't from the south at all. But he sort of like thing that just it just sort of came naturally. He didn't necessarily think about it. I think at first, yeah. it just sort of became part of his persona. So it was, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, it's even so, my voice right now, this is not my original voice. Um, you know, my, my voice, I, I sort of constructed this voice over time and I picked the qualities that I wanted to have in my voice and in mm-hmm. terms of how I wanted to be perceived. And I think that people can do that and it, it does affect how people perceive you. Yeah. Now, are you from Boston originally? No, I'm from Virginia. Virginia. Okay. Virginia. Yeah. So I have, my father is from West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And my mother was from Pennsylvania. So I have little bits and pieces of each of them uh, in my idiolect, my own personal dialect. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you had asked me before about other aspects besides typical, what we typically think of, you know, accents, like just beyond the consonants and vowels, like, do you, what do you do if someone comes to you and says they want to have a more authoritative voice at work or... Mm-hmm. And those are those are things that we can talk to them about. You know, there are a lot of trends in how people talk. And sometimes people pick up certain qualities and it might be age related. And so it may not help them at work because they may have older people evaluating them and older people may perceive these younger trends in speech um, and ascribe some sort of quality to it uh, right. or value. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, but being able to sort of control your your communication can be helpful. Yeah, it, I'm just wondering if you also, have you followed uh, the stories about uh, the perception of vocal fry? <laughs> right. I am a little bit obsessed with it. Are uh, you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I really follow and I really observe trends in speech. Yeah. And vocal fry, actually, I have a little bit of it in my voice which I deliberately put in because I think it adds sort of a richness and a warmth. I think it does. But if I add like too much, like if I do this, then it sounds like I'm, you know, like really young. Um, So that can be a problem. Um, I was just sitting by a table of people who exhibited probably nine of my favorite current trends in, <laughs> in speech. And I was, I almost wanted to record them, but I thought that would be really inappropriate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there are certain qualities. So like doing vocal fry, doing a lot of, um, up talking at the end, like, mm-hmm. are you following me? Do you know what I mean? Is embedded in the sentence with, with your intonation. So that if I say, um, I think that vowels are really important Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not really asking if that's, that's not my question. I'm saying vowels are important. And do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, do you agree with me? Um, and it's embedded into the sentence. That's really big. And there's also a thing right now where people are doing, let me see if I can do it. It's a way of listing. Um, we used to have a way to list where you would pause and then state things like I got bananas, oranges, and apples. Yeah. And now people do... Yeah, I went to the store. I got bananas, oranges. <laughs> I know exactly. Do, yeah. Yeah. You raise your volume and you uh, lengthen the vowels. Yeah. Um, people do that a lot. 
you know i this is a another random thing but no one this isn't so much of a voice thing but a um a, i guess a language starter that you're talking about up talk but i i've noticed this for a long time here's something that's been gaining traction forever the starting of sentences with the word so <laughs> yeah right yeah i yeah. you know i first noticed this i i I talked to this about my uh, I tell my wife about this all the time and she's like I don't know and I'm like we all do it now everyone starts with sentences with so and I, I remember I first noticed this on this at least 10 years ago I think it, everything starts on the coasts right <laughs> <laughs> it was like a VH1 program not that I watch it was like this um, one of those shows that really talk about you know the, the sweet lifestyle of rap stars or whatever this is and okay. so somebody's crib yeah someone's crib and so the um here i said so um the woman was talking about a a party that puff daddy was throwing okay like so puff daddy had you know cristal and blah 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 blah, blah. and that's where it it was first cemented in my mind and now i feel like everyone especially folks in california this is just my anecdotal non-scientific observation i don't know well but this Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, I, I hear it all the time and I find myself doing it. Well, the, the thing that's so important about this is that these observations that you're making can tie to people's perceptions and, and can have values associated with them. So I had a client who came to me um, who had an accent, but also told me that he had gotten negative reports at work for being sort of cold in his communication with others. I remember thinking, and this was someone I actually had worked with for a while, and and so I was surprised um, because he's he's a very warm, very friendly, very nice individual. Mm-hmm. But so I started doing some analysis, and as I was working with him on other things, I noticed that you know when we when we um, add stress, when we do um, stress syllables, we make things louder, we make them longer, and they go higher in pitch, and sort of like this arcing pitch, like biology. We go up in pitch. Mm -hmm. I noticed he made his syllables louder and longer, but didn't change the pitch. So he would do biology. Oh, okay. And then I thought that is also sort of how we do sarcasm. (laughs) Ah. That's how we do sarcasm. You make things louder and longer, but you use sort of a flat pitch. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. Oh, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he was coming across as being negative when it was just one little feature of, of his um, intonation pattern was off. That's a fascinating observation. Yeah, yeah. That's why, that's why coming back full circle, this is why I think speech language pathologists are really ideal for this sort of work because people talk about their values and perceptions and opinions and, Oh, it sounds this, it sounds that. Mm-hmm. But speech therapists don't do that. We say, mm, your vowels are longer and you're inflecting upward at the end. <laughs> right, right. And, and someone else perceiving that negatively, and someone else may perceive it as positive. Um, but for us, we're sort of the neutral person that can sort of say, here's what's observable and here, here are the reactions you're getting. And you're, you may get very different reactions from different people. So let me ask you, are you able to observe these things in real time or do you find yourself having to video or audio record them and go back? Well, I do a couple of things. Um, The very first homework assignment they get from me after we do a diagnostic, their first homework assignment is they have to um, make a recording and send it to me. 
And I like that because it does a couple of things. One, I listen to it a lot just to really try to internalize their dialect mm -hmm. so that I can really have a sense of what they say. But then we use it also when they end the program, I have them re-record it and we compare and they get to keep their, their first sound file so they can actually hear how much improvement they've made. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you, hey, so you've been doing accent reduction for how long now? A few years. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. And um, do you, you mentioned that client, uh, Boston native. Do you mm -hmm. happen to, do you specialize or do you find yourself having referrals from any one particular dialect more than others? No. Um, I've had um, Russian speakers, French, Portuguese, Spanish, um, several different African languages, um, Chinese, um, Cantonese specifically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've had a lot of different speakers. I do find there are some things that I'm able to do with French speakers because I speak French. Um, I, I'm really familiar with, with the phonology, and I can sort of use that to my advantage so I can take a vowel that exists in French and show them how it's different in English. Yeah, that, so I would, yeah, that, I would imagine that gives you sort of a, um, and a little bit of an advantage in sort of getting started. You know, I, I suppose one thing, you know, I was thinking to myself, do you, to what extent do you need to know to really get inside of the, the culture and the phonology of the given language to, to get started? And I could see where it's an advantage, but uh, not absolutely necessary, because as long as you are a good transcriber and you know physically what they're doing uh, acoustically, you can just make the adjustments as necessary. I mean, right. Yeah. Um, do you, but I remember uh, not just the course I think they originally went to, but I remember looking at what is it, the Compton program? Maybe it was a different one. I can't remember. I, another program I remember looking into talked about the importance of really getting in uh, into the you know the the cultural norms of a uh, of a given population you're you're dealing with, um, and uh, and really getting under the hood of, of phonology. Um, and I can see again where that can give you a, um, you know an advantage, like in you know, speaking French, but you know, again, not absolutely necessary. Um, in terms of just being able to just get in there and, and just go to town. Now, I mean, would you agree with that, right? Well, what happens is that you start to figure out the, the phonology of their first language in your interactions with them. Yeah. So you'll start to notice patterns and realize, oh, this is a rule for you. Um, you start to feel that certain, um, you might notice a pattern of, a certain vowel not existing in an, uh, in an open syllable versus a closed syllable. Um, or you might notice um, insertion of a vowel. So a really common thing that could happen is someone will say, oh, it was very special. And mm -hmm. they'll insert a vowel before um, an S blend. And so in Spanish, um, you don't start words with just S blends. You, you have a vowel beforehand. So a vowel will magically appear in English words that just start with an S blend. Yes. So it, the more you know about the first language, the easier it is for you because you'll be able to predict these things and it makes it easier to hear. Sure. Um, so it's sort of a trade-off. Um, the more you know takes the burden off what you have to just perceive on your own. Right. Um, so they, they support each other. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um I that's funny, I was thinking to myself, I have a number of uh Latino students and uh I, I do some work on phonology with some of the, it's it's more language based uh my program. Um yeah, maybe equal, I don't know. But um I I, I have a number of I think two students in particular over the last year who I work with and that's funds with. And uh I remember thinking to myself, it should theoretically be easier for them to get it in the medial position because there's so many Spanish words and because they have that onset of esplens, you know, Espanol. So I found that's actually not true, but <laughs> at least for these two students. Right. I mean, it's like, it depends on so many things. I mean, it's like you've got the issues of their language and then, you know, if they're disordered, um, then that's, you know, that right. adds a whole nother level of complexity. Yeah. Now, so another question, do you find that certain dialects have been harder to work with than others? Are, are there certain dialects that are just more resistant? People always say that. I, you know, I think that, you know, I, I've thought about this a lot. And yeah. I, I think that just mathematically, if you have a language that is phonologically more dissimilar to English, you have more to learn. Um, and then you've got the issue of, of how long that person has spent um, trying to acquire this, um, you know, English as a second language. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got just their own personal learning factors, like how good are they at discriminating sounds? What was their, what was the, you know, their education in the language like? Who was their teacher? Was their teacher a native speaker? Was their teacher someone in their country who also had um, an accent when they were teaching? So that their target already was accented English. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So those are complicated things, but there are some languages that are just more dissimilar than English. Um, you know, so if you have um, a language that's tonal or um, has very different a very different vowel system, then you just have more to learn. So I would think that, for instance, uh, Cantonese. Someone who speaks Cantonese as a as their native tongue might have a more difficult time with English language sounds because of the tonal differences? Well, tone definitely will play a part because we use tone so differently. So yeah. we don't use it as segmental, but we, we still use intonation patterns, um, and they're still important. Um, what I do find is some languages don't pronounce final consonants. And so that's a big issue for us. Um, whenever someone leaves out sounds, that has a really big impact on intelligibility. Yeah. So that's something that, that I look for, um, and it's one of the first things we address. So when I do a diagnostic and I sort of prioritize what are we going to tackle and in what order, one of the things that I look at is are they leaving sounds out because that's going to have a huge impact on intelligibility. Yeah, as, as with any client, yeah. What is it, so what does your assessment process look like? So uh, the first time we meet, um, I do a diagnostic, and... I created my own. Um, I, I looked at some existing sort of um, pronunciation tools, and I, I didn't find them to be comprehensive enough. I knew what I needed to know, and so I wanted to make a tool to get me there. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I, I look at their language at the word um, and sentence level and then discourse level. So... We start with a list of words that have all of the sounds of English, and I just sort of get a sense of, and they're simple words, so I get a sense of just where are they at at that level. Mm-hmm. And then 
we start going into more specific word lists, and I've divided the word lists up by certain features, which they don't they don't know what I'm looking for when I'm looking for it. Okay. So, uh, for example, it may be big building block things like do they how are they with the distinction between um, ooh like Luke uh, and uh like look? Can they make that distinction? So there might be a list of words that alternate or have some other things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also go into things like um, some allophones. Allophones are super important. And if you can um, address some of those, uh, they'll sound more native. So um, I almost always teach the allophones of T, uh, of t with, um, with my clients because most of the time they make either an aspirated or just a released T in all positions. Um, depending on their background, it makes a big difference in what things sound like. If you say Tom and Water and Batman and Got, it doesn't sound the same as someone who's native. Right. right. So, you know, if I can teach them to do glottal stops so that they're not saying mount, mountain or um, even mountain, mm-hmm. uh, but to say mountain <laughs> mm-hmm. with a glottal stop and a, and a syllabic N. Um, they'll sound way more native. So they're not okay. So they're not aware of the of what you're going for here. Now during this um, during this assessment process, are you recording that that portion or no? Or just saying? I don't I don't record them. Um, I find I don't need to. I go through and basically what I do is I can drill down. If there's something that they've mastered, we may not go to that list because I hear they they already have this mastered. I I don't need more information. Um, and when I hear something that's interesting, I have another word list that goes a little bit deeper and uh, might be a little so more challenging. You can go down that, yeah, okay. So I can kind of go down a path with them. Then we go into sentence level and one of the huge, this is huge, and anyone who's, if anyone who has ever had me as a client listens to this, they'll say, no, it's true. He really does make a big deal about this. <laughs> um, reduced vowels are so essential and they're not taught. Uh, in a lot of foreign language classes. So, you know, my clients will say things like, um, I want to go to the store. And so I teach them that they're going to say, I want to go to the store. Yeah. I want to go to the store today, not today, today. <laughs> um, and so I teach them those. And so things like for becomes fur, it's for you. But not at the end of a sentence. Who is it for? Not who is it for? Yeah, all these um, tiny pivots. Oof. Tiny, but you know what? The thing is, I find if you teach them all along, yeah, um, I just mention them as we go. They get better and better at them. By the time I formally teach them, they're built in, and it makes a huge difference in their in their communication. Now, do you find? Uh, I, I'm wondering if having them do some type of discrimination training might be helpful as well. Like if you have pre-recordings, you just as teach them this concept of allophones, you know, for instance, um, all these variations of, a, of the same sound. I mean, I'm sure with some clients, first of all, first of all, that it's harder to, to get there than others for them yes. to even hear it. <laughs> so how do you get them to hear it? Like, is it is a discrimination training? Is it just, is it a matter of just practicing it? I mean, it depends. Or, you, you, you really kind of, this is where this is where it gets really fun. But as a as a teacher, you're always sort of assessing them and where they're at. And I've got students have different level of skill just in their abil- ability to listen and imitate 
And I have um, students who have are different in a different point in their training, right? And these are variables that can be that can be different for different sounds. Mm-hmm. So they might be able to imitate one sound but not make it on their own. And they might not be able to hear the difference between these two vowels. Yeah. Okay. So what we know is if you can train them to hear the difference, they're more likely to be able to make the difference. So you train the ear and the mouth will follow. That's sort of the idea. And so, you know, you sort of assess. So if I have someone who cannot hear the difference, so if I say pen and pan, and they say, they are same, pen and pen, they are same. Like, no, actually they're not. And so I'll make a, I'll make a word list. I'll make uh, sort of minimal pairs and we'll go through and, and you can scaffold it to different levels. So I might say, I'm going to say a word, like the, one of the easier levels would be, I'm going to say a word. I'll say these two words and then I'll say one of them. You tell me which one I say, point to it. Then you're just trying to get them to discriminate the two, just be able to hear the difference when I make it. Yeah. And you can... And you can emphasize things, you can control it, you can show them the difference in length, you can show them the difference um, in sort of your mouth configuration, and then you kind of reduce these and you make it a little bit harder as you go on so that they move on from there. Now, moving on to the production side then, do you use any type of biofeedback or placements, uh, tools, et cetera, that maybe other SLPs use? It depends. You know, so... First, I want to see if they can recognize the difference um, between the sounds. And sometimes once they get there, they can recognize the difference, but they can't make the difference. So then we want to practice that. So we practice that together. And then I'm assessing something. You have to sort of tease the skills out. So sometimes they may not be able to make the difference, but they know they can't make the difference. Yes. So then, okay, so then we do more practice. I break down the sounds. This is exactly where your tongue is. This is what you're doing. This is what's tense under your jaw or not tense under your jaw. So we go through those parts. The key, though, is if you have someone who cannot make the difference but think they can, <laughs> they think, I made difference. Pen and pen. I did it. Yeah. Um, then we might say, all right, well, let's, do, let's add on another layer. And so I might record them or do something so that we separate the production from the monitoring because they're not able to do both at the same time. They can't self-monitor. Yeah, yeah. So then I want to separate those skills out so that they can um, do it and then listen. So a lot of recording and then going back and playing it and having them listen to themselves and back and exactly. forth. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I could see how that could be helpful. I, you know, I remember talking to um, Kathy Runnels. She was on the mm-hmm. show before. Uh, she is a smart palette user like myself. You know, the uh, electro palettography device. Right. And then she's, I think she's, I believe she's used that before with some of her clients. Um, particularly, I think probably with the, uh, I would imagine with our sounds. Um, I know she's found that to be, but I'm also thinking like, I'm wondering if you've ever used um, something like the speech buddies or some other tool. You know, it's funny. I've looked and thought, you know, do I want to do something like this? And I, you know, it's never been, I've never gotten to an obstacle where I needed something like that. Um, We've always gotten through it. And I use a lot of cues um, where I use my hand to sort of show placement. I do a lot of description. You know, I have some 
really brief, accessible ways that I describe every sound of English so that they're distinct. Like, this is what you do. And we use a lot of strategies. So we talk about anchor words. And when we talk about anchor words, they might, I have anchor words that I tend to use, but they are customized for the person. So if they can't make a sound, but then suddenly they can make it only in this one word, mm-hmm. then that word is their anchor word for that. Because that's the word where they can make it perfectly. Ah, and yes. We, it's like one of those one of those tricks, what do they call that in our therapy? The uh, whisper fade, I think. Okay. Yeah. Where um, they can say like, you know, airplane, but they can't say air. Oh, so oh right. You, yeah, yeah, you can yeah, change yeah. the context or you change, you put things at word boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. yeah. yeah, those are great strategies and they work like a charm. No, that's, uh, no, that's good to hear that you've had uh, such success in this, you know, just using uh, traditional and discrimination uh, routes. Yeah, um, and even with R. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, even um, with R. That's we know amazing. How hard that is. Yeah, oh, R. <laughs> Should do a whole episode of this on R. Um, so, okay, I want to ask you about, what is a typical uh, length of therapy? What's your typical engagement with these with uh, your clients? Are they six sessions, ten sessions, longer, shorter? It varies. So I have a couple of packages that I offer, which sort of helps in terms of um, making things a little more affordable for people. But I have a six-section package, which is typical for people who maybe have a regional dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes we use that as a, a maintenance package. So someone wants to continue on with me. Um, so they get a, a shorter section. And I have a 14 package, which is more for people with foreign accents, heavier accents. Um, yeah, we, okay. it depends. So we might do, the sessions are 50 minutes in length and usually weekly. But we kind of see how it goes. I tell people, you know, it's customizable to some extent. You know, I have a guy who really likes to do a session and a half every week that works for him. And I I still monitor, you know, I still kind of decide, do they burn out or do they stay really fresh and get a lot out of a session and a half? Do they, some people like to do every two weeks so they have extra time to practice. So I kind of monitor, do they really, are they twice as good when I see them again, <laughs> mm-hmm. did, they, did they really get two weeks worth of practice? And if so, that's we'll use that as a pace. Um, but if not, some people really need that weekly um, sort of just to touch base and yeah. uh, keep things going. Yeah. Now, yeah, you do therapy via Skype as well, or I, I do, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And is would you say that accounts for a big part of your uh, business? I mean, do you, do you require, for instance, that everybody meet with you initially at least face to face, or is it kind of all over the map? It's all over. I mean, I, I've had um, clients who are nowhere near where I live. So yeah. um, the only option is for us to meet via Skype. And I was nervous about it. You know, was Skype going to be, or any sort of, you know, telepractice, was it going to be effective? And it has proven itself to be incredibly effective. There are some things that are a little bit different. You know, you have to make sure I always wear headphones. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't ha- even have to be special headphones. I use the ones that came with my iPhone and they're magnificent. Mm-hmm. And there's some things that are actually better. I can do things on Skype that I can't do as well in person. So for one thing, I can, um, just the way I mark up text, pull up things from the internet, 
um, share my screen and, and show them things. I can draw on my own face on the screen. <laughs> oh, the show <laughs> placements, is, yeah. Right, which is really effective. I also can get really close to the camera to show them the, my placement of my tongue and my mouth, which might be a little bit much in person. Yeah. Um, this sort of barrier that makes proximity not an issue. So I can, you know, really show them where my tongue placement is. Now, this markup thing that you can do, is that part of Skype? Well, I use different programs. So there's a, a great tool that you can use um, that just allows you to draw on your screen in any program. Oh, okay. Um, and actually, it comes standard in Macs. And if you give me a minute, I'll think of the name of it. But it's, it's yeah. already part of a Mac computer. You just have to know where to find it and pull it up. Didn't know about that. Yeah. Uh, no, that's really cool. So you have, so you have, do you have people who are, live outside of your state, outside of Massachusetts? Or? Yes. Wow. Absolutely, so yeah. do you overseas even? Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you okay. have to, I mean, you have to know what all the rules are in terms of where you can practice. And, um, you know, those are issues. You have to make sure that um, you don't violate licensing issues. Yeah. Uh, so you, you want to be aware of that sort of thing, but it, you can connect with anyone anywhere, uh, which is pretty great. But, you know, when I was doing some work in, in Africa, I was able to meet my, with my clients back here. Um, just via Skype. So it was really handy. You just have to, you know, do some math on the time difference. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. <laughs> right. Um, if, you can, if you can find that uh, common time to meet, you're good to go. Now, are, are you um, licensed in other states besides Massachusetts? So I'm just licensed in Massachusetts. Just so okay. um, what I try to do is my clientele is almost all Massachusetts at this point. Yeah. Um, in fact, most of them are even Boston. But still, even within the same city, the benefit of meeting online is just you turn your computer on and you turn it off. So my clients don't have to travel. They can do it from the comfort of their own house. Uh, sometimes they're nervous about, am I going to get, is it going to be good enough? Am I going to get the same service versus meeting in person? Yeah. And I, I really, I really am a, uh, a believer in telepractice. I just think it's really effective. Yeah, I'd love to do a show on that, actually. I've been meaning to contact someone about that but um yeah it's i think it's fascinating now I, and it's good to hear that you've been able to you know i've always been worried about the downside of telepractice namely that you can't be there to uh ha have that one-on-one uh, -on -one connection in person and also maybe show them more demonstrably what it is you're trying to get them to do but you can do that via skype as you just right suggested. i mean you have to be you know there's certain things that you cannot do um so I don't know that I would want to do it with children under certain ages, just in terms of engaging them, having them just sit in front of a screen. Yeah. Um, you'd have to, I'm someone I'm sure has figured out how to do that with maybe someone on site, a parent or something. But the other thing too, is I have, um, I do have deaf clients who I do sort of standard sort of speech therapy, deaf adults. And we do speech therapy via uh, Skype. The one thing that I can't do is any sort of kinesthetic. I can't, place their fingers on my throat right, uh, or uh, on my face so they can feel um, nasal plosion and nasal resonance. So that's a drawback. Yeah, getting me, I think that the key advantage of doing this, of doing accent modification work via Skype is, I mean, what makes it beautiful, it's such a, a nice relationship with uh, the telepractice model is the fact that you have clients who came to you, are motivated 
uh, versus, you know, working with kids in maybe in a rural school district yeah. where they don't have access and you're wondering, are they even going to sit in the chair for you? Right. So. And that's a huge, that's a huge benefit of just having your own private practice. I mean, I, I have had people investigate the practice, you know, I, I want to use this service. Um, but they were sort of, I don't know, they, they, they didn't sound very ready. They didn't sound very motivated. And I, I referred them to someone else. I, I let my clients know up front, I'm going to do everything I can so that this service is effective and efficient. I'm going to make sure that you make the most progress in the shortest amount of time possible. Mm-hmm. But you, you have to, you are a collaborator. You, you're in it with me. Um, I need you practicing. I need you committed. You know, we have to work on this together. We're in it together. And if, and if you're, I'm in, <laughs> yeah. I'm in and I need you to be in too. Have you found, uh, have you found the differences in motivation? Say, um, the difference between a, a client who came on their own volition versus a corporation that said, we want you to go see Tom Scholl. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I, in general, I mean, I have the most amazing uh, group of people that I work with. And I, and I really love working with them. I mean, they're smart and they're funny and they're motivated and they love the progress they make. I mean, they can see that they get better. People understand them better when they go into the world. So that's exciting for me. I've only had one person who, whose boss paid me to do classes for them. And they saw the value of the service, and I think that we were able to build rapport, um, but they did not choose the service and did not want the service initially. And that affected their progress. Yeah. Uh, absolutely did. Yeah, yeah I can see that. So I'm just curious, because you've developed your own protocols, well, let me back up for a second. I just I wanted to ask you, being that you work, your main job is in the school district. This is something right. you do part-time, uh, evenings, weekends. Right. How so? How do you have time? What does a marketing process look like? <laughs> how do I have time? How do you find clients? I mean, I you know my first you know when I when I knew you were doing accent modification, my first guest. So here is my first thing. My I'm like, okay, he lives in Boston. Boston's a you know large American city. You have how many universities within? <laughs> oh, I know. It's how many people everywhere. from other countries? Yeah, big tech sector you know, all the clients you can possibly, you know, need. You just put up your shingle because it doesn't matter if there's 15 other people doing it. There's just that many, there are that many clients there. You know, same thing in New York City. So, you know, versus someone who's in Des Moines, Iowa. But you do work with a number of clients outside of the Boston area. You do a number of Skype sessions. But I don't know, is that part of it, that the fact that you are in Boston and that you, there's just that much uh, need? Well, breaking in, that's always the hardest part, right? So for me, you know, I, I'm lucky because I have, I'm able to do a lot of different things on my own. So I was able to create my own website and set up all my systems on my own. My goal was to start the business for under $100. That was my goal. Yeah. And, and I did that easily. So, you know, I created uh, a website. I integrated it with uh, Square, uh, which is uh, an online uh, marketing or not marketing, an online e-commerce payment, yeah. uh, payment method so yeah. that I could take credit cards. And I was able to integrate those. And then in terms of marketing, my first client came, I was really lucky. So I went to a party and I met these really just a lovely group of people. And there was a, a handful of people there from um, Bulgaria. And 
this lovely woman came up to me, and we had really had a really nice chat. And she was, now, Tom, tell me, what, what do you do? What do you do for a living? And I said, um, I do accent modification for a living. <laughs> and so I led with accent modification rather yeah. than saying speech therapist for the public schools. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm needing this. <laughs> so she became my first client. And then when you have a client, they tend to refer people they know, especially when they, when they make progress. And I've had clients that people in their community who have the same first language start noticing their accent changing. Why, why is your accent changing? Yeah. <laughs> you sound more American. And then they'll say, oh, I see this guy and he does a service and, and then more people come in. But you're right. I do tend to try to focus my marketing on universities, hospitals. I think of where are there professionals whose communication might interfere if they have an accent, that it might interfere with their communication. Mm-hmm. And you find that there are professionals who say, I'm really sick of repeating myself. People keep asking me to say the same thing over and over again. I have trouble on the telephone. Uh, I make calls and people don't know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, people, I, people have to make phone calls for me. And they shouldn't have to go through that. And so if you can teach them how to systematically sound more native by just by modifying their accent to another accent, and it alleviates these obstacles for them, then that's a good thing. So you okay so um you do get a number of uh, referrals from former clients right and uh, I'm sure the friends of their friends now do you so you also do you cold call or do you sort of send out information to the universities and hospitals no, I, and No I um I I might do some ads in um newsletters um sometimes I put up flyers in buildings I don't know maybe I'm just lucky but when I advertise at all in any way, I get a giant wave of people coming. So I regulate how many clients I have by not advertising. Yes, you have the same problem that I'm sure that I do. Is that I'm I have my, my part-time private practice and you know, there's times of the year where I'm like, okay, I can use another one or two, but there's most of the time I'm like, I can't advertise because I can't take anybody else. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I, I really try to keep my caseload of my private practice uh, like around maybe eight to ten clients. And because I really like to give them a level of individual care and service. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really, I really want to know their accent. And I really want to also the scheduling. Um, I, I really pride myself on that when clients come and say, I want this time, I can usually give them the times that they want. Um, yeah. so that's another issue. Just making sure you have the times available. Yeah. yeah. Well, another nice thing I'm sure is that because you do work in the schools, it's probably advantageous that you can, you both probably want to work, uh, in the evenings and weekends. Right. You and know, they love that. It works out so, for them too. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And you can sort of do, you know, in the summer, I'm sort of doing more summer hours. So I'm sort of changing my hours to be more, uh, weekly, but they're extended. So now I can, I can, meet with anyone any time of day really because i don't have my day job right so um you know i was thinking to myself you because you've created your own assessment and because you've been doing this now for a period of time and you sound like you're really good at what you do have you thought about making your own course yes there are i really want to scale the business a bit and i feel like i'm in a unique position 
because of my background. You know, I've studied accents and dialects for decades. And phonetics and phonology has been a passion of mine for uh, my whole life. And now as someone, you know, I teach um, phonetics uh, at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Okay. And, and we talked about this, about what do you need in terms of your training to be able to do this? You have to have a really strong phonetic background. There's no way around it. Yeah. You, you have to know allophones. Why does it sound different if someone says pan? I'm cooking in a pan. Well, they used a. Ah. But why did it not sound the same? So you have to be able to know what are the really fine allophonic differences. So what I want to do is I want to create programs that teach speech pathologists how to do this and maybe give them supplemental information because, you know, we all take phonetics, but this goes, this is sort of the next level. So there you're learning IPA and transcription. Um, You go into acoustic phonetics later on. There's this other layer of sort of deep allophonic narrow transcription that I think um, that you could look at through the lens of accent modification that I think would be really powerful for speech therapists. Well, I, I have to tell you, if, if I were to go into accent modification, well, you know, even as a, as I just say, run of the mill speech pathologist, I've always felt that I can do better in my transcription skills. I remember as an uh, as a grad, well, undergrad and grad student, it was, remember, I remember taking. You know, where we would all as an exercise do the transcription, you know, the teacher would play a uh, passage and we'd all have to transcribe it. And we would all come up with something that all, it was like the telephone game. You know, all, it looked a little <laughs> bit different, like the original <laughs> message and the, the correct transcription. Okay. Uh, you know, well, maybe. Fun. I might maybe, have to try that with my students. Oh, you should, because I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I, I'm not, I might be just be talking out, you know, but I, I thought I remembered uh, in terms of just research studies that how difficult transcription was that if you put, if you took a, uh, you know, 20 people in a room and said, you know, experienced speech pathologists and said, okay, transcribe this sa- sample. How many of us would actually uh, come upon right. the, the exact, the, the true representation? Right. But it's, it's yeah. a lot of different skills, right? So it's not yeah. only at first you're, you're trying to learn uh, the sound symbol correspondence. You know, what, how do you encode a phoneme into IPA? Yes. Yeah. But, but there's so many more pieces to that because then you also, do you know what your underlying phonology is? Like, do you recognize that there are, you know, three versions of the plural marker S, you know, cats, dogs, and foxes yes. are a little bit different. Do you recognize that it's a reduced vowel that it wasn't fox says? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of pieces that go into it. And I think if you could target those to really help people do that and we're doing that. So, you know, one of the things I really love about, the MGH Institute is that they're they're not afraid to to really innovate. I mean, not just say they innovate; they really innovate. Yeah. They're not afraid to be sort of cutting edge. And you know, one of the things that we're doing in our phonetics class is that we're going to talk about accent modification and how do you go about it and how do you choose targets and prioritize. And so we're we're getting into some of those issues that I think you know I I didn't really have back in the day, and and we're bringing those in for students. Yeah, yeah. No, that's wonderful. I, and I, I was thinking too, uh, there's going to be a day where artificial intelligence advances to the point where they'll speak into a microphone and Siri will just transcribe the whole thing. Well, <laughs> it sort of happens now. I mean, there are websites that will do it all for you, but it, unfortunately it doesn't help you when you get to disordered speech and you have to listen. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. 
Um, all right. Did I forget to cover anything today? Anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I can pull up your questions that you sent me. Well, I guess if people are trying to think, if, where do they get started with this if they oh, wanted yes. this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one, go back, go back to your phonetics and make sure that you're, you're strong in your phonetics. You're going to find patterns. So you follow the pattern. There's always, uh, you know, just like there's order in a disorder, there's uh, accents and dialects are very systematic and structured. And so you follow the pattern and you teach the pattern, not just words, so that people learn strategies and can generalize. That's super key. Mm -hmm. So much of it is just like speech therapy. It's like using authentic language. You know, a lot of my targets are generated by my students. I had a student, uh, a Russian guy who every day ordered uh, an almond croissant and, and a coffee they never understood what he said. And that's a pretty close set. <laughs> yes. He's at a coffee shop and no one could ever understand what he was saying. Yeah, yeah. So we, that was part of a lesson. And we, we took what was happening in those words um, and I fit it into the lesson that was appropriate for it so that he could go in and, and he said, so he went in and said it and he got it without ever having to repeat himself again. Mm-hmm. No, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of fun. It's, I know I'm almost a little sad that I never uh, tried accent reduction, but. Yeah, and modification. So that's another a modification. Key yeah, modification because you can't reduce your accent because everyone has an accent. You just get a new one. Uh-huh. <laughs> you just get a new one, and and you know if you get good at accents, then people get to pick. So what people they want to can use. yeah, they can sound a little more California, or they could sound a little Midwest, or um, a lot of my clients want a sort of a Mid Atlantic DC accent, which is easy for me because that's near where I grew up. Now, what is a Mid-Atlantic DC? I, I still don't understand what that. It's there are a few differences. So the Cot-Cot merger um, didn't happen there. Um, so um, for me, I have two distinct vowels: Cot and Caught. Ah, okay. Uh, and but I did have a vowel merger before Rua and Or words. So instead of saying uh, sort of the open O Or, I tend to say Or, which is more of a monophthong O Or. Okay. Um, there are a few other things and I don't want to scare off your listeners thinking that's really technical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I was actually thinking about this because I was, um, I was in DC over uh, my spring break and, uh, I'm always listening whenever I travel. But the thing is, the, thing, the hard thing about DC of course, is that so many people who live in DC aren't from DC. So you don't know, you know, right. what, is, what is native and what isn't, you know, right. a lot of transplants. Um, yeah. I grew up there. And, yeah. you know, it's like there, I think that there are some generic, there's some th- things that we tend to think of as a standard American sort of English. And you know what the, you start to know what the nuances are. So whether or not someone says long or long, um, mm-hmm. there are little differences that you can detect. And, you know, you, you can decide how far you want to go. Um, with reduced vowels, sometimes my clients are worried they're going to sound too informal, they think they're going to sound, um, um, it's not uh, maybe appropriate for the workplace. But that's just not the case. You know, across the board in, in dialects of American English, you find reduced vowels even in formal settings. The, the president was using them in a recent speech. So I think if you have a keen ear for it and you can kind of start to notice the different features of accents, then you can just kind of handpick and kind of present a few choices. You don't want to bombard your clients with them, but 
you give them a few choices. Here, here are two possible ways to pronounce this. Which one, which one do you like? Yeah. And here's a perception, any perceptions that might go along with it. Yeah. You were mentioning before, um, I think early on in our conversation about the fact that you really enjoyed listening to a couple, you know, a couple of girls there and you wanted to record them, you know, cause it's, it's <laughs> right. very unique. You're talking about the, the nine most, uh, the current trends. I, I'm just wondering, do you keep, do you, do you sort of keep an audio library? Do you find something interesting and say, I really need to, to uh, get that down on, on uh, some digital files so I can show this to folks later? Sometimes more for me, it's, I, I'm really big on sort of cataloging, cataloging it in my mind um, so that you can whip it out and say, this is what this sounds like. Yeah. Um, and especially if you have clients who travel for work, so they'll go somewhere and come back and say, I went to this place and everyone sounded completely different than what we're learning. I was like, where'd you go? They're like, well, I was in Texas. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> so that's, it's going to sound different. And so, you know, if you, if you're able to kind of show differences and with my phonetic students, you know, they were having trouble with, um, sort of that lowercase a versus the script a. You yeah. know, what's, what's the difference? And they didn't understand why we use one a diphthong. So I was like, okay, so there's like stop, Tom, oh my God. And then there's stop, Tom, oh my God. Yeah. And so when, if you're able to do that for people and model it, um, they can, and that probably, that makes you probably feel quite at home. <laughs> <laughs> that vowel. It does, yes. And I, I, I always, I'm always self-monitoring myself too, how much of my, uh, my Midwest... <laughs> You're, you're a little bit of Chicago. My, my Chicago, my nasality comes out, but you know, sure. <laughs> it's who I am. Um, yeah. So it, I think one of the, one of the uh, skills that you, that you certainly bring to the uh, profession is the ability to model. So, you know, it, it's not something that everybody can do when you can get up in front of your class and actually say, here's what it sounds like. Yeah. And you, yeah. you need to. So, I yeah. mean, I, I think that if you're, if you're going to do accent modification, you have to have a level of comfort to be able to reflect back to someone, here's what I'm hearing, and here's, what, here's the target. Here's what we're going to aim for. Um, especially because, you know, something we haven't talked about is what if you have someone come in who is an actor who wants to have an accent that isn't just your accent? Yes. Like, he doesn't want my accent. He wants some other third accent. Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to deliver that as a service? Um, yeah. And that's, that gets fun. Have you done um, that before? I haven't done, um, I haven't worked with um, like an actor for a role. I've done some people doing speeches and having to kind of change your accent for that. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, if you've studied, if you studied that, it's just really fun. It's yeah. just where it's good. And, you know, you, you start to notice uh, when you watch television, you'll just start to notice what pattern of vowels equal the perception. So you hear a set of vowels and you think, I'm perceiving Scottish, <laughs> I'm perceiving Irish, I'm perceiving Polish. What what is that? What does it break down to observably in terms of consonants, vowels, intonation, inflection? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, there was a famous uh, speech pathologist. He passed away, I think. Uh, he he was the guy who did a lot of accent work with uh, in Hollywood. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there there are just a handful of people who are um, who do that, and you know, yeah. we, we talked about this in our in the last episode just yes. that I, I used to work in in television and and movies, and so I think that's one of the areas that I think is next for me is working with actors and and helping them. Yeah, uh, 
acquire accents. It, it'll be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think it'd be really good. It's great work. I mean, it really is fun and interesting work. Yeah. So now, the, your course at MGH, is that, do you teach all year round or is it something you just do in the summer? Or So one of the cool things that MGH uh, does is that they, the Institute now offers the prerequisites for um, speech therapy programs in an online um, forum. So um, I'm actually teaching phonetics online. Uh, which is very, very cool and interesting. And um, I have students from all over the country, which is really interesting because they have very different accents. Uh, It is very cool. And so this is sort of a a new thing they're doing so that people can get all of their prerequisites done and get, you know, good quality coursework out of it. You know, I'm wondering, is there a way I can audit that class? Oh, gosh, that would, now that would be fun. I seriously, I'm I mean, sure for the longest time, up. yeah, I, I've wanted to take another, I wanted to go back and take a good phonetics course. I really, I, I wanted to go just to see where my skills are today and just how I can improve them. Because I'll, you know, I'll, I'll look at other people's transcriptions once in a while. I'm like, I forgot about that diacritical mark, you know, or like, I don't use that enough. Why is that? Right. You know, and, you know I think whenever you go back there, I mean, I want to retake most of my classes from graduate school just because now I'm actually ready to learn them. Yes, I, I totally agree. I know where you're coming from. Yeah. So it's like, I'm finally ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I felt that way about, I mean, just to go off on a deep tangent, I thought that about college, after I graduated, you know, like two, three years out, I'm like, you know what? It was really weird. I think I felt like the first, as an undergrad, I got more out of my first couple of years. And then, I don't know, my mind just sort of wandered. But I really felt like, you know what? I wonder if I just would have been better off waiting to go to college. Right. I mean, I'm lucky because I did. Um, I yeah. went. To, I went to college as an adult. But I think also there's a certain amount of burnout when you're in graduate school. There's you. You have a lot that you have to do. It's your attention yeah. is always divided. But I wish we had. I wish you know. I would like to see more training in this. And so I think for me, my next goals are to maybe develop some professional development around this, so that speech therapists are have the tools that they need. So they're not sort of just adapting what they got out of their phonetics courses, but sort of get to really learn how to apply it specifically for accent modification. There's certain patterns that I always see and you benefit from someone else's experience when you, when you get to interact with colleagues in that level. And then I want to develop some materials for my clients so that um, they can have other supplemental tools to really just to help them generalize even better in between sessions. Um, yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's one of the things I love about our profession is that there's so much area for development. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, there really is a lot of wiggle room. I, I always felt that in our profession, it's, it's a, um, the opportunities are li- The opportunities are actually almost limitless. Right. Yet the settings or what's limiting. So I, I think if you have, if you're somewhat of an entrepreneurial mind or, and or just very, very creative in how you approach things, you can find little niches and opportunities that uh, are just all over the place. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, I see it all the time with students where, you know, our, our education is somewhat standardized. So we have this sort of rigid sort of, you know, um, set of classes that we have to take. But it varies in terms of the professors we get to interact with, how deeply we take 
our coursework, some of our electives, our outplacements. And that's where you have to be creative and really figure out where are you headed and how can you get that information to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is getting, we're, we're really getting deeply into, um, life skills now. We we crossed that professional boundary you were talking about before. Yes, we did. But that's what this, that's what the show is all about. Crossing the boundaries. (laughs) Um, all right. So I think this is a good place to end. So Tom, where can people find you online, social media, et cetera? So I have, um, a website, soundpractice.org, where people can find out more about my practice and uh, more about me. Uh, I also have a sound practice uh, group on Facebook that people can like and mm-hmm. check me out there. I try to post some uh, interesting things about language from time to time so uh, clients can get um, updates from me. Um, and then, of course, always on donors choose slash Mr period shawl uh Uh, if you feel like supporting public school students um that's a great place yeah yeah now are you on twitter at all i am on twitter um mr shawl's class is the name of my twitter handle yeah i've got a lot of ways to connect don't i yeah Uh, yeah and then i encourage people to take a look at the um you know mass general hospital you know prerequisite program it's in their center for interprofessional studies and innovation um, and they've got some really great stuff coming out. So I encourage people to take a look, especially people, if you need to get prerequisites done. Yeah, and people yeah. can live anywhere and, and do exactly. this online. That's incredible. And asynchronously. So, you know, if you have free time at four o'clock in the morning, then that's, you can do your work at four o'clock in the morning. That's a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Really All right, Tom, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's always enjoyable uh, getting a chance to talk to you. Yeah, enjoy the rest of the summer. I think when we do round three, I want to talk more about cute speech. All right, that would be great. I would love that. (laughs) All right, have a great summer. Take care. Thank you. All right. Okay, thank you, Tom. That was a very insightful conversation. I learned a lot. Uh, You made me want to learn more. If you ever come out with this course, and I know you will, let me know. I'd love to promote it, and I'd love to uh, peek under the hood. I want to jump into this more. Of course, uh, I don't have the time to. (laughs) Hey, I just worked on an app uh, for the last year. I've got a podcast. I've got a family. I've got a full-time job. No, um, I know a lot of you out there are are interested in doing this. And so, uh, especially with telepractice becoming so much more prevalent, now you can do it from anywhere. So, as usual, please do contact me with questions, comments, and any rants that you might have. Jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. I'm on Twitter, yeah, Twitter, Twitter at Jeff Steppen, no H. And of course, Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash conversations in speech. If you like this podcast, please feel free to give it an honest review on the iTunes store. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.